The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. That is why we are here to magnify, to glorify, to express Christ's worth. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to John 17. By the providence of God, on this, did you know this is Reformation Sunday? 504 years ago today, Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis on the Wittenberg door. Thus began the Protestant Reformation. And um, I say by the providence of God because the Reformation had much to say about God's glory. And... Here we are in John 17. We're going to focus on the first two verses that say a lot about God's glory. So uh, let's pray before we look at God's word. Father, uh, we ask your blessing. Please bless the reading and preaching of your word. Help us to see the glory of your electing love so that we might give you the praise that you richly deserve. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, would you stand? I know, we back and forth. Sometimes we stand, sometimes we don't. This just feels like a standing kind of morning. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, John 17, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Don't you love, I don't don't know about you, but I love to hear people pray. I love listening in on, well, when they know that I'm listening in, um, on prayers, whether it be a small child and there's just this sweet and simple thankfulness and trust in God, or, or maybe it's a, an older saint with many years of life experiences and a built trust and knowledge and intimacy with God. When we listen to people pray, uh, we might learn something about God. We might learn uh, what that person believes about God. And who better to learn from than Jesus, who, whose understanding of God is perfect because he's the son of God and God the Son and God the Father are perfectly one. So what a privilege we have in this 17th chapter of John, where we listen in, where we hear the heart of Jesus as he knowingly approaches the most critical time in in all of human history. Jesus knows why he came. And what he will accomplish. And with absolute unquestioning confidence, 
he presents his requests to his father. He prays. John 17 is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in this prayer, he prays uh, for himself. He prays for his disciples. And amazingly, we read of him praying for us. He prays for his church. For himself in verses 1 through 5, this is how you break it up. For his disciples in verses 6 through 19. And then, yes, amazingly, verses 20 through 26, we get to hear Jesus praying for us because he, he prays, he says he prays for everyone who will believe in him through the gospel ministry of these disciples. That's you. So it's, a, it's an amazing prayer. Again, this morning, I just want to focus on the first two verses, how Jesus begins this prayer, and that it's centered on the glory of God. Jesus approaches the great shadow of the cross, and we might expect him to pray that the sacrificial act of love would save as many people as possible. But instead, his prayer is God-centered, not man-centered. It's about God's glory. Even the salvation of man has to do with God's glory. More and more, more and more, I like the word hero concerning when describing Jesus. A basic definition of hero is a person who is admired or idealized for courage, outstanding achievements, or noble qualities. And this definition of hero seems trite (laughs) in light of the ultimate hero that Jesus is. We learn a lot about people when they're in the midst of a trial or suffering. Do the confident statements of the past match how they actually react in the moment of crisis? Are they really who they thought they were and said they were? Or was it just a bunch of bluster or overconfidence and assumption? Jesus is our ultimate hero. And God's glory is what's most important to him. Even in saving us, he prays that we will respond in glorious ways for the sake of glorifying God, for the sake of showing that God is the ultimate treasure to be valued and praised. Life life is hard, and we need and we have a hero in Jesus. I love what one author wrote. He said, he describes this, he says, um, There was literally nowhere else to go. The Israelites, desperately fleeing Egypt, found themselves at the brink of the Red Sea with Pharaoh and his army in hot pursuit, intent on destroying them. They could not go forward and they could not go back. I know something of what they felt when I have found myself in the middle of a struggling business venture or caring for my wife while she battles cancer. I have been pushed to the brink of what I can bear. In those moments, I feel anxious, fearful, and frustrated to the point of despair. 
I desperately want to set the story of my life straight, but I am unable to do so. I need a hero in my story, and I'm painfully aware that it is not me. You know what happened at the Red Sea? At just the right time, God intervened by doing the unimaginable. He split the Red Sea, and his people crossed over to safety. When the Egyptian armies gave chase, they were destroyed as the walls of water collapsed around them. The breakthrough they never could have imagined came. I've often wondered what it must, be, must have been like to witness the great sea parting. We all wish we could see what God did that day. We all want to see the Red Sea cut in half. But no one wants the Egyptian armies chasing them down into a corner with no place to go. And yet, we don't get one without the other. The reality of the Christian experience is that God often writes the stories of our lives with problems we can't solve so that he alone receives the glory for saving us. I love love that last sentence. Let me read it again. The reality of the Christian experience is that God often writes the stories of our lives with problems we can't solve So that he alone receives the glory for saving us. We need a hero. We need Jesus to save us and to help us all along the way in life. We need him for the ultimate problem of sin and guilt for salvation. And we need him every day in the problems we can't solve. Knowing that that he alone deserves the glory. The other day I heard a precious young woman who's facing some very scary health concerns express, I am the Lord's and he is mine. The hour has come. Jesus is done giving his farewell discourse and now the cross is right before him. And I suppose the first lesson that we see in our text is the example that we should follow, which is to look to God in prayer. Jesus spoke these words, and then he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he prayed. There's no moment like the present to pray. And so often when when that thing is right before me, I consider prayer, or I'll tell that person I'll be praying... And I love the example given to us by Pastor Dale, who doesn't just say that he'll be praying, but he stops right then and he prays. That's a great example. I don't know why we struggle so much with prayer. Um, Sometimes I stupidly think, well, God knows. He's sovereign. He's in control. I trust him. And then... With this true thought, I sometimes don't pray. Don't you think Jesus knew these truths better than anyone else? (laughs) Didn't stop him from praying. And so no matter how many times we've 
asked before, how confident we may be in God's perfect plan, nothing should keep us from praying to him. Jesus states that the hour has come, and the first thing he asks the Father, the first thing that he asks him for, speaks to what is primary in his mind, what is of primary importance. He prays, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus, our Savior, who willingly humbled himself by becoming a man, reveals that his primary purpose in coming is the glory of God. Yes, the cross is certainly about man, but even more so, it's about God. Much of today's Christianity is really man-centered. We see a good example in a, a, an older song, but a song that starts out well, but comes to a wrong conclusion. Here's, I'm not going to sing it, but here's how it goes. Um, above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, above all wealth and treasures of the, of the earth, there's no way to measure what you're worth. Crucified. Laid behind a stone, you lived to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought, what? What is the central thought of Jesus as he faces the cross? The song's conclusion is this. You took the fall and thought of me above all. Yes, Jesus thought of us, but above all else, it was for the glory of God. There's no treasure compared to God's worth. Not you, not me. We are not a treasure that's above the worth, the glory of God. Yes, the Father loved us, and so he sent his Son. Yes, the Son willingly came and died in order to save us. We don't deny the truth of this, but there is an ultimate purpose expressed in God's Word. And here, in the very prayer of Jesus, we see that it's God's glory. Yes, there is a connection to us. Notice that Jesus first asks, Father, glorify me. Thinking of the cross as the ultimate display of heroism, of sacrificial love and incredible grace, Jesus prays, knowing that this horrific, shameful event will be his glory. There's no other way for a holy and just God to forgive guilty sinners. Jesus died to save us. And in doing so, above all else, this glorification of Christ's love and mercy is meant to communicate or glorify God's love and justice and mercy. Our faith is not centered on man with a God who is desperate to have us because we are the greatest treasure to possess. No, our faith is 
a God-centered faith, where God puts himself on display as the hero. The cross shines the light of glory on a hero, and we're not it. No, the person who is admired and praised for his courage and achievements and perfect qualities is Jesus, who came to make the Father known. Even in praying for his own glory, it's for the sake of showing us the Father. The sacrifice of Jesus points to the the Father's giving sacrificial heart in sending his Son. The love of Jesus communicates the love of the Father. His patience and gentleness and grace glorify the Father as being such. And this principle of glory even applies to us. How we live, how we react to the troubles of life shows us to be at times, well, either courageous or cowardly, faithful or selfish. There's a sense in which we may receive glory, a sense in which we should want glory but not a glory that ends with us above all else. We should want people to admire us so that we can point to the real hero who is the source, who is conforming us to his image, knowing that anything admirable seen in us is really a communication of what's true and glorious about God. So we might actually pray in a similar way, Father, in this surgery, through this financial difficulty, through the loss of my loved one, make me shine. Make me stand out and be admired, not for my sake, but for yours. Glorify me in this circumstance. Use my life so that I may glorify you. After all, isn't this why we exist? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever? There's no greater purpose to anything else, to anything in life. So like our hero... Lift up your eyes to pray. Don't hesitate to go to the Father in prayer and ask for his grace for the various moments of your life that he would cause you to shine for his glory and recognize his gifts to you. That's what we're going to focus on next. Jesus recognizes the gifts of the Father, three gifts that the Father gives him in particular. Look at verse 2. Jesus prays that he may glorify the Father since you have given me what? What has the Father given to Jesus? He mentions three things. You have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. The Father has given him authority over all flesh. He has given him a people for himself. And the right to give these people eternal life. And this is about the glory of God. First, what does it mean that Jesus has authority over all flesh? 
Every, every person who has ever lived or will live, Jesus has authority over them. He has the authority to command and to judge and to forgive. He's the ultimate king. And the scope of his authority is universal. It applies to the rich and the poor, to every category of humanity. No exemptions. Each and every person is ultimately under the authority of Jesus. And so even though the Jewish rulers and the Roman authorities have a sense of authority in the events that are about to come, Jesus is in ultimate control. He willingly gives his life. No one takes it from him. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, everyone will admit to his authority. For God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The angels and the redeemed will gladly confess that Jesus is Lord. And for the demons and those who do not believe, it will not be a glad acknowledgement, but there will be a confession nonetheless, because Jesus has overcome the world. He is victorious. The Father has given him authority over all flesh. There is no question of escaping his authority. The only question is whether your submission to Jesus will be joyfully done or in fearful hatred. So the scope of his authority is universal. And the depth of it includes the whole of our being. Jesus not only has authority over all people, but he also has authority over our stubborn and rebellious nature. And this is good news because if he left us to our own fleshly will, there'd be no hope. For God's word declares no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We need a hero. We need a hero to overcome our rebellious nature, our flesh. And because he has the authority to do so, he can give us eternal life by giving us the gift of faith. Jesus has the authority to take out a heart of stone, a heart that does not seek for God, and to give us a heart that is alive to him and believes in him. People want to say that there's a line that he cannot cross, a line of our wills. But thankfully, this is not true because Jesus has been given authority over all flesh. And because of this authority that chose to love us, we're given hearts that respond to him in love. His authority is merciful and loving. It's like the command of Jesus that 
opens the eyes of the blind and raises the dead. Our hero has authority over those who once opposed him, you, me. And if you know and love Jesus today, it's only because he had the authority to change your heart and give you a faith that gladly declares that he is Lord. A second gift that we see in verse 2 is a people. Jesus gives eternal life to who? All whom the Father has given him. We do not simply on our own come to Jesus and therefore receive glory for making the most wise decision that anyone could possibly make. No, there is a reason that we came to him. And this reason rightly gives God the glory. We come to Jesus because of what Jesus says right here, which echoes John chapter 6. If we have come to Jesus... It's because the Father gave us. He gave us specifically to Jesus. Jesus glorifies the Father by saving a people, by saving all whom the Father has given to him. Now, much of Christianity today doesn't like the thought of of predestination or a people that God elects or chooses for himself But this is clearly what our hero is praying about. Predestination and election are actual words that we find in Scripture. So a Christian really doesn't have the option of saying, I don't believe in that. They just need to have a right belief of what it actually means. And even though Jesus doesn't use these words here, this is certainly what he's talking about. To whom does Jesus give eternal life? Answer, to all that the Father gives to him. Again, uh, this is mysterious to many people because I want to acknowledge, yes, from our perspective, we only know our experience of, of hearing the gospel and choosing to believe in Jesus. And this is absolutely true. This teaching does not deny this truth. But understand that this is only one perspective. This is only your perspective of what occurred. God also has a perspective. And isn't it important for us to know his perspective as well? His act of love that enabled us to believe? Because if we didn't know this, then... Wouldn't we at least get some of the glory? After all, it is a smarter choice than those who reject Jesus. It affects our eternity. So what Jesus describes is really God's perspective. And this perspective tells us that the Father, before the foundations of the world, determined to love us. And so he gave us as a gift to his son. And Jesus has authority to give all of these eternal life. And this shouldn't sound strange to any of us who have actually read our Old Testaments. Because don't we see God choosing Abram 
Not because he's great, not because he stood out. He chose him. He chose Israel to be his chosen people. This is not a foreign concept. And once again in this debate over election and free will, what it comes down to is either a God-centered view or a man-centered view. Either God's glory in having mercy on whom he has mercy, or, or man determining the definition of love and what seems fair and what God can or cannot do. Jesus has all authority. So who are we to question his decision concerning eternal life? Jesus describes the Father's election. He's been saying all along that he is the shepherd of his sheep. And that there are those who are not of his fold. Here in 17th chapter verse 9, he prays for those whom the Father gave him and not for the world. In John 6, we see that Jesus has absolute confidence that all that the Father gives to him will come to him and that he, as the good shepherd, will not lose any of them but raise them up at the last day. God's glorious perspective shows us that we were personally known in eternity past and that he chose to love us by giving us to his son. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, saying, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Amazing. Glorious. The third gift that the Father gives to Jesus is the right or authority to give eternal life. Jesus gives eternal life. And we are not saved by our faith. No, we are saved by Christ alone through the gift of faith alone. Jesus must go to the cross. Jesus said in John 3.14 that the Son of Man must be lifted up. He must atone for our sin through his death on the cross and believing in him, looking to him and trusting in his saving work. This is the faith that he gives to us. Eternal life is purchased by Jesus and it is received through his gift of faith. Jesus has all authority. He is not obligated. No, he freely chooses to give eternal life to those who belong to him. And those who belong to him are those whom the Father has given to him. And all of these will come to him and believe in him. This is the work of God. It's glorious, isn't it? And God alone receives the glory. Leon Morris explains that eternal life is not something that we achieve by our earnest endeavors, our good works, our devotional exercises, or the like. If we are to have eternal life, it will be because it has been given to us freely. Remember, 
the reality of the Christian experience is that God often writes the stories of our lives with problems we can't solve so that he alone receives the glory for saving us. That applies to the beginning of our salvation and all throughout our lives. Jesus, our great hero, assumes his sovereign lordship over a people who are unable to save themselves because in our own flesh, we were not merely sick, we were dead. John explains our faith in the first chapter of his gospel, saying, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Jesus has authority to freely give eternal life. And our faith does not come from our human makeup. We did not believe because we willed it in our flesh. No, we believed because Jesus has authority over our flesh and the authority to grant faith to us. And this, this is grace. It's grace. Our hero not only achieves what was necessary to save us, but he also has the authority to overcome our inability to believe. And he gave eternal life to the elect, enabling us to see and believe. And this is important. This is important because the hero deserves the glory. All praise is to God's glorious grace. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one can claim a part of God, God's glory. And if you wonder, how can I know if I've been given to Jesus by the Father? Well, have you come to him? Have you recognized your sin and asked for forgiveness? Have you trusted in the saving work of Jesus who bore the punishment that you deserve on the cross so that you might be reconciled to God? Have you come? If this is you, then you belong to Jesus. God gave you to him. All that he gives to him will come to him. And Jesus isn't going to turn any away. Jesus said that all, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you've come to Jesus and trusted in him, it's grace. It's because the Father gave you to Jesus. And he promises to receive you and give you eternal life. And if you're thinking, I still don't get it. Why does any of this matter? It matters because it has to do with Jesus' prayer. His desire for God's glory in his work. It matters because in our sin, we always want some kind of credit. We don't like the thought of being impossibly helpless and in need of a hero. We're a we're a can-do kind of people, and we, we want to define love. 
and apply it to God instead of hearing how God defines it. All of this matters because it has to do with an even greater vision of Christ having all authority, even over the will of our flesh, and freely giving it to those who were less than less capable than we thought. Those who needed a Savior, maybe even more than they realized. All of this matters because it has to do with our worship. He alone is worthy of our praise, and grace is truly 100% a gift of God. We're not wiser than those who don't believe. We're just recipients of God's mercy. And for this we owe, we owe Him our undying, our enthusiastic, our growing and joyful praise. And it matters because, like Jesus, the ultimate aim is God's glory. And so, in your sufferings, you can trust him. And people will see your, your peace. They will see your confident hope in him. And any glory received is meant to shine a light on his infinite worth. It matters for the very reason Jesus prays. His death and eternal life is ultimately for the glory of God, and so is yours. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.